Well, good morning, Three Circle Church. Good to see all of you here in Fair Hope and glad to have all the folks in Ardale worshiping with us uh, today and everyone else who is joining us online. Uh, as you heard, this is the last installment of our Achilles series, but before we get into that, just let me make uh, one plug, uh, and that is that in a week from today, our new season of small groups will begin and uh, they'll begin at all of our campuses. And so if you have not signed up for a small group yet, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, you can do so by going to the hub and uh, there are some folks there that will help you, show you exactly how to do it, help you to find a group. We believe that uh, small groups is the soil uh, and the ground that is the most fertile when it comes to spiritual development and uh, comes to discipleship. So get plugged in to a small group. So uh, today, as I said, the, the end of our Achilles series, sort of the background for this uh, series is obviously the uh, Greek mythology. So if we have any uh, uh, people who majored in Greek mythology, then you know all about this. So uh, Achilles was a mythical figure. He was uh, uh, considered to be invincible. Uh, the reason for that was because his mother, when he was a baby, dipped him into the river Styx. And uh, the problem was uh, that he, uh, even though he seemed to be invincible, he had one small area uh, of weakness, uh, which was where she had held him by the heel when she dumped him in the river. And so as is the case, an enemy will always find your weakness and an arrow found its way to Achilles' heel uh, and subsequently he died. And so the idea is that uh, all of us have weaknesses uh, and we have an enemy that will exploit those weaknesses. That's what uh, Peter is talking about, First Peter 5, 8 and 9, where the story of Achilles is a myth. Peter is talking about real life when he says that be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter was acknowledging everybody has weaknesses and that we have an adversary, the devil, and he's seeking whom he may destroy. And the plan for doing that is that he will identify uh, those weaknesses that you have and he will exploit them. He'll exploit them to his advantage. He looks for vulnerabilities. Uh, we see that all the time. We see it in the world around us. We see it in the world, in the corporate world. We see it in politics. We see it in sports. Everyone looks for an advantage. They look for a weakness and then they attack that weakness. We all have them. And so Peter is saying that we need to be mindful of that, be self-aware, understand what our weaknesses are, and be vigilant to guard ourselves against the enemy taking advantage of those weaknesses. Or don't allow what seems to be a small thing to become a big thing later. Now, we focused upon three things so far. We focused on time and how it's important to use that and not waste that. Uh, we've talked about identity and the value of finding your identity in the right place. And we've talked about our minds, uh, to guard our minds, to not allow the culture or the enemy using the culture to bring intrusive thoughts 
into our minds. So today we're gonna talk about perspective. We're gonna talk about one particular perspective, uh, and that is the, the, the weak point that Satan could exploit in your life that's called the attitude of entitlement. An attitude of entitlement. Now, if I were to ask you here or in Robertsdale to define entitlement for me, every baby boomer in the room would raise their hand, I know what entitlement is. And the way you would explain it is something like this. You would say, well, it's all those millennials and it's all those Gen Zers and it's that they're always wanting something. Every time you turn around, they're marching for some perceived right. Every time you turn around, they're claiming that they deserve something. It's like everywhere you look, and if we were to ask you, you know, uh, you know, how do you feel about it? You'd probably say, well, they get on my last nerve. Uh, you know, I'm just really tired uh, of all this entitlement. Well, to all the boomers in the world, let me just give you this warning. Buckle up your seatbelt because Generation Alpha is now becoming teenagers. And there is no telling what they're gonna demand. There's no way of knowing what they're going to come up with. But here's what we need to do. Let, you know, let, let's be clear. So let me help clear up for the boomers. Let's get a real definition of entitlement. Now, a definition of entitlement is that it's the belief that a person inherently is deserving of privileges or special treatment. Now notice says any person, not a young person, any person who inherently feels they deserve special treatment or privileges. A lot of times it's based on status. They think because of who they are, they deserve something. Sometimes it's, it's you know, based on position because they've risen to a certain level. They deserve a certain amount of respect and certain privileges. Sometimes it's because of merit, because I've done certain things. I am deserving of a certain type of reward. I deserve these things. And uh, some people, uh, they don't even look at status, position, or merit. They just say, just because I exist, because I am, I deserve certain things, certain privileges, and, and certain rights. Now, another thing we need to know, though, is that millennials and Generation Zers did not invent entitlement. They're not the first ones to come up with it. Matter of fact, the Bible's filled with entitled people. If you go all the way back to the fall of Lucifer, uh, what got him in trouble? Entitlement. He thought he was entitled to the throne of God. He thought he was entitled to the worship and praise. He deserved to be acknowledged on the same level as God, and so it got him in trouble. Why did Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? In part, entitlement. They thought they deserved to know everything God knew that they had a right to know that. And they fell to that deception and it caused them to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So the idea of entitlement is not new. It's been around as long as human beings have been around. Now the language of entitlement is filled with all kinds of little catchphrases. It's filled with phrases like, I deserve. It's filled with phrases like, I am owed. Or like the phrase, I should get. 
In other words, I see something that someone else has, I know I'm just as worthy, or in fact, probably more worthy, and so I should get that. They shouldn't get it, I should get that. So we hear this language all around us, it's all throughout the culture, but for us who are Christians, we need to realize that this sense of entitlement crosses over into our lives, our spiritual lives, and it crosses over in how we approach our relationship with God. It's an important factor in how I understand who God is and how he works in my life. You see, spiritual entitlement in basic terms is that we believe God owes us. I mean, God owes us. He, he, you know, he owes us a loving marriage. He, uh, you know, well, a loving marriage without too many problems. Uh, you know, he, he owes us a stable and good paying job uh, with insurance and retirement, of course. You know, he owes that to us. He owes us our families. He owes our families good health and uh, disease-free lives that he just owes this because of who we are as a child of God, who we are as far as how we serve him, whatever status, whatever category or criteria you want to use, spiritual entitlement says God owes me certain things because of this. Now, what we need to understand is this kind of, kind of attitude is a thief and it will rob God and it will rob us. So how does it rob God? A sense of entitlement robs God of his generosity. So let me ask you a question. Uh, how many of you ever heard of the IRS? Any of you ever heard of the IRS? It's a new thing. Uh, uh, how many of you, and you can raise your hands here, Fairhope, uh, Robert Satter, campuses. how many of you have ever gotten a refund from the IRS? Let me see your hands. Hold them up, don't be ashamed. Just because you paid them too much, that's okay. Hold your hands up. Okay, good. All right, let me ask you this. When you received your refund, was your first thought, man, the IRS is so generous. I can't believe that they sent this to me. They are such a generous organization. No, we didn't say that at all. Why didn't we? Because it was our money. We obeyed the laws, we filled out the forms, we did everything the way we were supposed to do, and so they owed us a refund. It wasn't a generous act on their part, they owed us that refund. You see, there's nothing generous happening when someone gives us what we're owed. Now here's the problem. If we think that God owes us a good job, that he owes us a carefree life, if he owes us a husband or owes us a wife or owes us healthy children or owes us great vacations, then when those things come into our lives, we don't see that as generosity. It's just God giving us what he owes us. He gets no credit for giving us what we believe we deserve. Now, this whole idea really begs a bigger question. And the question is, does God owe us anything? I mean, does he owe us anything? Well, after extensive research, I've compiled a list 
of what I think God owes me. And maybe this would be your list, I don't know, but this is my list. That's what God owes me. Now, some of you may agree. Yes, I agree with that. God doesn't owe me anything. But then there may be others who feel differently. Maybe you feel like some, well, God created us and therefore he has a responsibility toward us in the same way that a parent would have responsibilities to care for their children. God has to care for us. And the reality is that God in his goodness and his graciousness and his kindness, he does take care of us. He does provide for his creation. But what we need to understand is he doesn't do it because, he, we, he, because we deserve it or because he owes that to us. He gives us the blessings of our lives out of his free goodness, not out of an obligation that he has to do this for us. In fact, scripture teaches us that as his creation, we are obligated to him, not him obligated to us. In Romans 9, 12 through 21, it says, you will say to them, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, what the writer is saying is this, that the potter is not obligated to the clay. The potter is not obligated to ask the clay, what would you like for me to make out of you? What would you like to be today? Would you like to be a saucer? Would you like me to make you into a cup? Would you like for me to make you in, in, into a, a flower pot? Would you want to be a brick? What, what would you have me do for you? And see, what the writer is saying is that, that it's not that the potter is obligated to the clay. The clay is obligated to the potter to allow the potter to make out of them whatever he desires and that God, according to this verse, is fully willing to accept that responsibility, to make out of us whatever he desires with all of our faults and all of our blemishes. One thing that some people will say, whenever they, let's say they get to the point, they say, okay, God, doesn't deserve to give me everything I want. But I do believe that if I don't get what I want, I deserve an explanation. God owes me an explanation. Whenever I think about God owing someone an explanation, I think of Job. He was a good man, a godly man, but God still allowed Job to lose his family, to lose his health, to lose his riches, and to lose his status in society. And throughout the book that carries his name, Job cries out to God for an explanation. Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? Why am I suffering like this? And God finally answers. 
38 chapters later, after all of that crying out to God, God finally speaks. And you would think, okay, God finally is going to tell him why this is going on. Here's the explanation. But what does God actually say to him? What does he actually tell him? In that essence, he says this. He says, Job, there are just some things in this life you don't understand. No explanation for why. Just there are things in this life you will never understand. And to be more pointed, in Job 41, 11, he explicitly says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Another translation says that God's response was this, who has the claim against me that I must pay? So who can stand up and say, God owes me? Who could stand up and say, I gave this to God, so God must repay me something? And the answer is obviously the rhetorical, no one has a claim against God. The truth is God owes no one anything, but the truth is also this, that he liberally and generously gives to us. He gives us breath, he gives us families, he gives us friendship, he gives us financial provision, he gives us a beautiful creation to live in, he gives us mercy and forgiveness, he gives us the promise that when this life is over, there will be an eternal reward, and he gives us all of that and so much more, not because we deserve it, not because we are owed it, he gives us that because he is generous. If we're not careful, we allow this attitude of spiritual entitlement to cloud our vision, and we don't see the generosity of God. You see, the presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms all of us to a life of confusion and routine disappointment when things inevitably go wrong. If we're always looking for an answer, if we're always trying to figure it out, if we're gonna live by the, the standard that because of who I am and the way I live, God owes me something, we are going to be perpetually confused and disappointed in this life. Because this is a messed up world. It's a world filled with sickness and disease and heartache and hurt. It's a world that is, is filled with injustice and suffering and just on and on and on. And what does God do for us in the midst of that? He says, I want you to live in that messy world. And he says this, I want you to live in that messy world and not going around pounding your chest, declaring your rights. But I want you to live in that world, living out your privileges. The privilege of being an agent of the gospel, the, the privilege of being a servant of mankind, the privilege of getting to serve an eternal king, the, the privilege of, of representing his eternal kingdom, and the privilege that one day when our time is over, that we will have the privilege of standing before that king not to claim our rights, but to bow in his presence and allow him to give what we do not deserve and give us an eternal reward.
not because of who we are, but because of his generosity and because of his love for us. So no matter what the world brings us, don't let it cloud your eyes from recognizing the generosity of God. But this attitude of, of spiritual entitlement doesn't just rob God, it robs us. It robs us of a sense of gratitude. You see, the appropriate response to generosity is what? Gratitude. I mean, if someone does something for you, what do you usually do? Thank you. I appreciate that. So let's get back to the IRS. Those of you who have received a refund from the IRS, how many of you sent them a thank you note? None, that's rude. I mean, you send thank you notes for baby showers and graduation gifts. You always send people thank you notes when they give you something. So why don't we send the IRS a thank you note? Because we don't consider it to be generous when someone gives us what they owe us. And if they're not being generous, I don't owe them any gratitude. And so consider what you're saying then when we don't recognize the generosity of God and respond with gratitude for what he's done in our lives. Consider what you're saying. You're saying, first of all, you're responsible for all the good things in your life. All those things that God has blessed you with, all those things you wanted and now they're there, all of that is not because of God, it's because of you. Because if it was God, you'd be thankful. If it was God, you'd give him gratitude. But you don't, so it must be because you think it's all you. Or then maybe you're simply saying again to God that, well, it's, you're not worthy of thanks because you're just giving me what, what I'm owed. You're just giving me what I deserve. Or maybe what we're saying when we're not grateful to God is that we can't because it's difficult to be thankful for what we have when we don't believe we have what we deserve. It's hard to be thankful for the car I have when I look at my neighbor's car and realize I deserve that one. It's hard to be thankful for the house that I have when I see somebody else's house and think, I deserve that. So maybe we're not as thankful as we should be and show as much gratitude because we don't think God's given us what we deserve. Now, there's a parable in the book of Matthew that really talks about this. I think it's a great illustration of people who don't give gratitude because they don't think they have what they deserve. Let me give you the background to it. Then we're going to look at something. So in Matthew chapter 20, there's a story uh, of a man who owned a vineyard and it was time to harvest his crop. So he needed workers, needed laborers. The workday is from six in the morning till six in the evening. So he goes to a place where people who don't have a job are hanging out and he asks some of them, would you like to work for me and I'll give you a denarius for a day's labor. Now we'll make it where we understand, we'll say a hundred bucks. So he said, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you'll work all day. They were thrilled to do it. 
The story goes on and says, so that was at six o'clock in the morning. Then he says that at nine o'clock in the morning, he went and got some more people, didn't tell them how much he would pay, just said, I'll settle up when the day's over. And then at noon, he went and got some more. Three o'clock in the afternoon, he got some more. And then at five o'clock, one hour before the, the shift's over, he brings somebody else in. So it's six o'clock, day's over, time to pay. And then this is what happens. Matthew 28, beginning with verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So starting with the one hour worker, pay him first, then pay as the hours they have worked. So the persons hired first promised the hundred bucks would get paid last, okay? So pay them from the, you know, from the earliest to the last to the first. And those who's hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a hundred bucks. So the one hour workers got a hundred bucks. What were the 12 hour workers promised? A hundred bucks. What do you think happened in that payroll line? When they started seeing the one hour worker got a hundred bucks, it started trickling back. They just gave that one hour guy a hundred bucks. So everybody's thinking, I worked three hours, that's 300 bucks. I worked six hours, that's 600 bucks. The people who were promised a hundred bucks, they're thinking, maybe we misunderstood. Maybe when he said, I'll pay you for a day's a day's work, a hundred bucks, maybe what he meant was a hundred bucks an hour. We're gonna get 1,200 bucks. Then the story says, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a hundred bucks. So what was their response? And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have been born the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What'd they do? They grumbled at the master. Now we need to understand that an attitude of entitlement prompts us to grumble about blessings not received instead of being grateful for those we have received. Okay, put it in the story. Not one of them thanked the master for giving them a job when they didn't have a job. Not one of them thanked him for the promise of a fair wage that they were happy to agree to and for the honesty of the master to pay them that fair wage. They couldn't be thankful for what they had because they were so upset over what they didn't have. Now, what changed them? What changed their feeling toward the master? Well, they saw what someone else made. Now, if they had just taken care of them by groups, they'd have been okay. If they didn't know the one hour worker got $100, they'd have been, they'd been fine when they got up there and he said, here's your $100. They'd have gone home, said to their wife, look, I made $100 today. 
But what changed them was they saw what someone else made. And comparison will cause you to think that it, something isn't fair. Comparison fuels the attitude of entitlement. Because how many times have you heard someone say, it's just not fair? Well, how do you know it's not fair? Well, because I'm comparing it to someone else. I'm comparing it to another situation. I saw what they got and I didn't get it, so it's not fair. Now, I want to show you a powerful illustration of this. Now, I want to set it up first. Some scientists did a study called the Capuchin Monkey Fairness Study. Okay? So get all that straight. They took some Capuchin monkeys in, in cages side by side so they could see each other. And the researcher taught them uh, that, that they had a job to do. And when they did their job, there was a payment for their job. Their job was to take a small rock that was in their cage, hand it to the researcher, and their payment was he would give them a piece of cucumber. So he started working with them, got them trained, and for weeks they did this. Give the rock, give the cucumber, eat the cucumber, thrilled. Content, happy, their life, little monkey lives are at peace. I mean, everything's going great. Until one day, the researcher introduced a wild card. Instead of giving a piece of cucumber to one of the monkeys, he gave him a grape. Watch what happened. Monkey on the left gives the rock, gets his cucumber, he's thrilled, that's where it's supposed to go. Monkey on the right does the rock, he gives the rock, now he gets a grape. Look at the monkey on the left, whoa. Now watch what happens when he gets a cucumber. Hold up. That's not fair. Watch a monkey on the right. Does the job. Gets a grape. Monkey on the left says, I'll do a better job. I'm gonna test the rock. Bangs it on the wall. This is a good rock. So give me something better. Cucumber. Nah. Give me out, I want out of the cage. I want those grapes, it's not fair. Watch, he, he starts pounding. That's just like some of y'all. Your life is happy, it's rocking on, you're content, and all of a sudden you see somebody got something new on Facebook and you're pounding the kitchen counters, you're slamming the dashboard of the car. I mean, you're, you're all upset because it's not fair. I'm at church all the time. I pay my tithes faithfully. I lead a small group. I serve on one of the teams. I'm at church all the time. I give all of this to the church and I drive this old clunker of a car and this dude that just rolls in every now and then doesn't even, he's not even pretending that he's living for God. He's driving that great car 
And I'm sure why he's driving it, because he's in debt. I'm sure that's what it is. But the truth is, I deserve that car. We, we lose the peace that God wants for us. We lose the sense of contentment that God wants for us because we're always comparing ourselves to what other people have. And when we do that, we don't thank God for what he's given us because we don't think he's given us what we deserve. You see, when you realize you're entitled to nothing, you become grateful for everything. Doesn't matter the boxes you check. We don't deserve anything from God. And when I, we live that way, we'll be grateful for everything that God brings into our lives. So an attitude of entitlement can be overcome by gratitude, but it can also be overcome by imitating the life of Jesus. Let's be honest, Jesus Christ was the only one entitled to be entitled. He's the only one that deserved it. But yet, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, think like Jesus, imitate Jesus, who thought he was in the form of God, did not, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, be honest. Jesus didn't deserve to die on a cross for our sins. Yet Jesus Christ chose to give up his desires, his comforts, his pleasures, and he did all of that for our eternal good. Not because he had to, because he chose to. So Paul reminds us that Jesus Christ laid down his entitlements, those things that he truly did deserve, so that we could share in his glory. So maybe the way we need to approach life is number one, trust God when we don't get the things we think we deserve. Trust God when we don't get what we really want, but also live our lives following the example of Jesus Christ and choose to give up what we think we do deserve. Humility and willingness to give up our perceived rights are not prized virtues in our world. They're considered weaknesses in our world, but they are stunningly beautiful to Christ. Humility and a willing to surrender perceived rights. Why? Because when we live our lives that way, we look more like Jesus than any other thing we do. To close out this series and to close out today's message, we want to go to the Lord's table in communion. When you go to the Lord's table, you go to remember what he did at the cross, which we should do. But I want us to also remember how he lived his life. We're not called to die on the cross, that cross. We're called to daily sacrifice 
our lives on the cross, to take up our cross. But we don't have to go to Calvary. But we are called to live the life of Christ, to live the example of Christ. So let's look at the humility of Christ. He never looked down on people, but instead he knelt before them to wash their feet. He never considered his own wants and desires. He always thought of the needs, the concerns, the cares of others. Never went around beating his chest saying, I deserve this or I deserve that. It was just always, how can I serve? So if you did not receive the elements for communion, if you just raise your hand, uh, there are some individuals who will come and bring them to you if you raise it and just keep it in the air so that they can see you. Communion for us is what we would call an open communion, which simply means that That if you're a follower of Christ, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, but this is not your home church, that's fine. We would welcome you to join us in communion. If you have not taken a step of faith and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, that's not where you are in your spiritual journey, then we would ask you to not participate, but to observe and maybe ask questions if a friend invited you today or when... This gathering is complete. We'll have some of our staff down here at the front. You could certainly come and ask them questions about what this represents. If there are kids in the room, then moms and dads, we consider you to be spiritual leaders in your homes. And so we would ask that you uh, make the decision uh, as to whether or not they should participate in communion based upon your understanding of their relationship with God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells us how we should approach communion. He says that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're to do it sober-mindedly. We're not to just do it as something to check off the box, to prepare our hearts, our minds, our souls to come to the Lord's table. And so I'm gonna ask you if you would just close your eyes for a moment, bow your heads and just invite the Holy Spirit to help you to see if there's some area of your life that may be displeasing to him. If there's an area of sin in your life that you need to confess, the Bible says if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you right there where you are. And if you would take the elements now and peel back that first layer it exposes the piece of bread and if you just hold that bread for just a moment before we eat it Paul said for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread.
if you peel back the cover of the cup and just hold that when you've done so. Paul said in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You can take the cup. He then says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's right that we remember his sacrifice because we have no opportunity of relationship with God without the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. So we are indebted to him for what he has done for us. But again, I hope that we will carry with us the need to not just honor his death, but to imitate his life, to live as Christ lived. Not as one always trying to exert rights, but as one who is grateful for the privileges that God has bestowed upon us and for the opportunities that God gives us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that he willingly laid down his entitlements, took upon himself human flesh and went all the way to the cross. Not because he was obligated to do so, not obligated to us, but because he chose to do so for us. Surrendered his body, shed his blood. And we who are believers are so because of that sacrificial work. God, I pray that you would help us to always remember that one of the ways that we are able to honor the sacrifice of Christ is to make the sacrifices necessary in our, own li- in our own lives to imitate Christ, to live as he lived. Father, I ask that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.